Coming up next, please join us for Real Israel Talk Radio. This is episode 108. Conflict is sometimes going to require that we get involved and do a rebuke. But we don't want that conflict, so we stay silent. And in staying silent, that stuff grows inside of you, and then you start hating the person, and that can lead to sin in you. Welcome back to Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, it's great to have you with us. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai. Today, I want to continue with a look into some additional New Covenant texts to demonstrate, at least in my mind, some direct connections to the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran House of Tzadok, the 364-day calendar, and to some of the issues that were predominant in the days of Yeshua and the Second Temple period. With this program, I want to take a deep look into the teaching that Yeshua presented in Matthew chapter 12, 1 through 8, and uh, let's just call this Hunger Games. As I understand the lesson, it demonstrates to me that Yeshua and his disciples absolutely did not submit to the Pharisaic authorities of Jerusalem nor to their interpretations or religious practices. Rather, it appears clear to me that he considered the scribes, the Pharisees, and the temple priests as self-appointed rulers over all of Israel as their spiritual teachers, interpreters, and judges of the Mosaic written law collectively referred to as the Torah. Among these religious groups, you can find copious references to the House of Baitus, referred to as the Bothusians in the New Testament writings, who were not of or in the approved descending line of Jehovah's biblical House of Tzedok priesthood and of their trusting faith in him. You will also find references to the high priestly house of Katros, as well as religious and political factions, such as the Herodians. They are also mentioned by name in the New Testament texts. So thanks for joining me today. This is Real Israel Talk Radio, Episode 108 and Part 12 in my series, The Dead Sea Scrolls and the New Covenant. One event that enraged the Pharisees and the temple priests, that is, the Sadducees, involves an incident when Yeshua went through some grain fields with his disciples on the Sabbath. Yeshua's disciples were hungry, and so they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat them. Well, let's pick up with the story in Matthew chapter 12, verses 2 through 8. And when the Pharisees saw, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, 
Well, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the lechem hapanim, also understood to be the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests or the Kohanim. Or have you not read in the law, referring to the Mosaic law, that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless or innocent? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is master even of the Sabbath. When today's Bible expositors unpack this story, they are often drawn to conclude that showing someone compassion and mercy definitely overrides the biblical laws of the Sabbath and also many other, quote, Old Testament laws as they might express it. In other words, they will tell us that our focus should be on the love and compassion of the Almighty Eternal One for every soul, period. However, I want to show you that the storyline conclusion is not at all about this. Well, yes, of course, we should naturally show compassion and mercy, as it is called, but we cannot and should not draw that lesson from this narrative in Matthew chapter 12, 1 through 8, because this is not what the story plot is all about. I think in a summary statement, I can confidently say that the storyline is all about those who legalize double standards. In other words, biblical and societal laws are there for you to obey, but certainly they are not there for me to obey. And we have no shortage of this kind of hypocrisy going on all around us in this world in our everyday lives. So please permit me to unpack the rather direct lessons of Yeshua as they appear in this incident, again as it is recorded for us in Matthew 12, 1-8. So let's begin with verse 1. At that time, Yeshua went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Now here, the Pharisaic grievance was not about plucking heads of grain from a local grain field. No, no, no. Their grievance was that of plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath, as those Pharisees and religious separatists interpreted the Mount Sinai Law of Moses, that action was a total no-no. Shortly, I will explain to you why. But first, let's examine the Law of the Torah 
speaking to the matter of plucking grain from a local grain field that does not belong to you. Let's go to Deuteronomy, the volume, chapter 23, verse 25. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. As you can see, there is nothing in this law that forbids plucking grain from a local grain field that just so happens to belong to your neighbor. Furthermore, there is nothing here forbidding the action on the Sabbath. And we'll come back to this Sabbath question shortly. But first, before I address that matter, let's look at the biblical definition of a neighbor, as it reads in Devarim or Deuteronomy 23, 25. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain and pluck those heads of grain with your hand. The Hebrew word for neighbor is resh ein, which can be pronounced as re'ah. The meaning of re'ah is that of an intimate friend, a comrade, a companion, a wife, a husband, a brother, a sister, a significant other. Here is an example from the Hebrew Bible. Exodus, Shemot 3311. So Yehovah spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Here, the translation friend is from the Hebrew word re'ah, or if you prefer, a neighbor. The context is that Yehovah speaks to Moses in the same way that one would speak to an intimate, close, deep friend. The concept is demonstrated through the lobes of the lechem hapanim, or what is often called the showbread, that priestly bread that is put on the table in the house of Yehovah. Lechem hapanim in Hebrew translates literally to bread of the faces, or to say it differently, the face of the bread looks toward the face of Yehovah, and that face-to-face oneness takes place on the table in the tabernacle. Another example of this deeply intimate relationship that Yehovah has in the relationships that he chooses to identify with, is that of Avraham. Let's go to Isaiah 41, verse 8. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Avraham, my love. Here, the English translation, my love, is derived from the Hebrew word, Ahav, a synonym for an intimate relationship between companions or deep friends, which is precisely how that love idea is understood in the New Covenant statement of Yaakov or James. 
turn to Yaakov or James 2, 23. And he, referring to Avraham, was called the friend of God or the friend of Elohim. The Hebrew word resh ein or re'ah conveyed to mean an intimate companion or a deep friend also bears another meaning when a different vowel pointing is applied to those letters, again, reshain. Given this, let us take this to a different place with the Hebrew word that can be pronounced as ra, or perhaps ra'ah. The idea of ra refers to something or someone evil, bad, contemptible, harmful, worthless, or dreadfully injurious. And I'm sure you've probably run into people like that in your own life. I know I have. So let's take a look at this example of Ra from Proverbs 28, 22. A man with an evil eye hastens after riches. The Hebrew idea here behind the term an evil eye is that of ra, resh ein. Another example can be seen from Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You will not bear false witness against your neighbor. Here, the English term translated as neighbor comes from resh ein or ra, meaning evil, bad, harmful, and one who is deemed to be utterly worthless. However, its opposite meaning is in the Hebrew word re'ah, meaning one who is an intimate friend or a deep companion. So why do you think that Hebrew expresses re'ah, meaning an intimate companion, with ra'ora, meaning something or someone that is evil, bad, worthless, and damaging. Well, I would say that it is because the closer that we get to something or someone, the easier and more likely it is that we might take advantage of a perceived weakness. Yes, even to the point that it becomes entirely possible that we might shape and plot actions that can be quite painful, hurtful, and damaging. And for those of you that are married, I think you know precisely what I am talking about. Some might call it taking advantage of weakness or taking advantage of the nice guy. So the question is, don't you think that our flesh knows this very well? Oh, I think so. And if we give permission to our flesh to act on that impulse, it will, guaranteed. Hence, in Jehovah's Word, the Hebrew term evil, bad, malicious, damaging, and yes, even harmful, that Hebrew word is ra. It is the same word in Hebrew with a slightly different vowel pointing that gives us an intimate friend and a close companion. That term is 
re'ah. And this is what Hebrew scripture warns us about in passages like Vayikra or Leviticus 19.13. You will not cheat your neighbor. Again in Hebrew, the word reshain, which could be re'ah, a friend, or ra'ah, a wicked, bad, malicious person. The command in Leviticus 19.13 goes on to say, We are not to rob that person. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You see, the beauty of biblical Hebrew is that a two-letter parental root, like resh ein, can generate a number of other related terms expressed as three-letter roots, which is why the two-letter Hebrew root resh ein, giving us words like evil and malicious and harmful, can also produce words like re'ev, Resh ein vet, which means to be hungry or to even suffer famine, or even the word roe, resh ein he, which means to feed and graze or to act as a shepherd. Of course, all of this forces us to understand Yeshua's biblical lessons about love from different perspectives. So here are a couple of examples from Yeshua. Matit Yahu or Matthew 5.45 But I say to you, love your enemies. That is, ra, reshain. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil, that is the ha and on the good. And he sends rain on the righteous or the just, and on the unjust. Let's flesh this out a little bit from Luke 6, 32-35. But if you love those who love you, that word would be re'ah, reshain, as a companion, a comrade, someone that you value in a relationship, then Yeshua asks, Oh, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, well, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And he goes on to say that if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners and receive as much back. But instead, he says, love your enemies. That is, love those that you might consider to be ra, reshain, meaning someone who's considered by you to be harmful, contemptible, injurious, bad, and perhaps even utterly worthless. You see, he says, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Here, 
He is kind would be from the Hebrew word racham, that's resh chet mem, as well as to the unthankful, hoda'ah, and the evil, the ra'ah, again, reshain. So as you can see, there's a play on the Hebrew words re'ah, for a deep companion, and ra'ah, someone who is contemptible, evil, and worthless. And Yeshua is playing one word against the other back and forth as he's going through his teaching. And it's up to us to determine how we're going to use that word in context, because not everyone is an enemy and not everyone is a friend. So it causes us to have to look deep into our own heart and know how we're going to deal with all of our relationships here in this life. So here is Yeshua's lesson as it is derived from the Torah in the Hebrew Bible at Leviticus 19, 15 through 18. And I've taken the liberty to put the Hebrew words into this lesson from Leviticus to show you how the words are shaping the meaning of the entire teaching. Let's start with Leviticus, or Vayikra, chapter 19, verse 15. You will do no injustice in judgment. The word injustice is from the Hebrew word aval, meaning you will do no malice and dishonesty in judgment. You will not be partial to the poor nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness, you will judge your neighbor. Meaning, in righteousness, you will judge your amam. Meaning, one who is of the same community or perhaps a fellow citizen. And that can be a citizen of heaven as well. In other words, a fellow believer. You will not go about as a tail-bearer, in Hebrew, a rachil, meaning a slanderer among your people. The Hebrew word for your people is am, that is, the clan that you happen to associate with. Nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. In Hebrew, re'ah or ra'ah. It just depends on the relational context that you're dealing with in that situation. And then our Father in heaven says, I am Yehovah. He goes on, And you will not hate your brother in your heart. The term brother is ach. You will surely rebuke your neighbor. Here, the Hebrew word for rebuke is yakach. To put someone right. To correct them. To rebuke them. Even if that person happens to be your neighbor which in Hebrew here is the word amam, those with whom you associate with in your family or your clan. And then he goes on to say, do not bear sin because of him. The Hebrew word is nasa for bearing sin, meaning to lift up or to lift off where remaining silent will actually cause you to harbor untold anger towards that person. Many of us know about this idea because so many of us just don't 
like conflict. And a conflict is sometimes going to require that we get involved and do a rebuke. But we don't want that conflict, so we stay silent. And in staying silent, that stuff just festers and grows inside of you. And then you start hating the person. And that can lead to sin in you. So we have to rebuke. But this is a very difficult commandment to keep. I would consider this command probably one of the more difficult commands to obey in the Torah, because rebuking is just not an easy thing to do. I'll come back in just a moment, and we'll deal with this. I'm Avi ben Mordechai, and you're listening to Real Israel Talk Radio. Welcome back to Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and thanks for joining me for this second half hour of the program. I left off before the break with a look into Matthew, Matityahu, chapter 12, verse 1. The lesson begins with that of receiving from and living in the biblical concept of an undeserved love and covenantal loyalty with Jehovah, because not everyone is an enemy, and not everyone is a friend. So it causes us to have to look deep into our own heart and know how we're going to deal with all of our relationships here in this life. Conflict is sometimes going to require that we get involved and do a rebuke, But we don't want that conflict, so we stay silent. And in staying silent, that stuff just festers and grows inside of you. And then you start hating the person, and that can lead to sin in you. So we have to rebuke. But rebuking is just not an easy thing to do. To try to put someone right, to correct them, to rebuke them. How do you do it? and do it in love. Just merely saying, well, brother, well, sister, in love, I want to say to you, no, no, it doesn't work that way, because it can be burning inside of your soul, even though your words are coming out saying, well, in love, I want to say this to you. So let's go on. The passage in Leviticus 19 continues, you will not take vengeance. The Hebrew word is kum, as in the Hebrew infinitive, Lakum, that is to rise up and to become vindictive. So he says, don't be vindictive. That sure speaks to a lot of situations that we find ourselves in today. Let's go on. You are not to bear any grudge. In Hebrew, the word is netzer. Yeah, we get the word netzerim from it. Nazarene, if you will. And what is the netzer in Hebrew? It is a plant shoot. It is to develop a perimeter shoot or root coming off of the main stalk or branch of a plant. And we are not to bear any kind of a shoot or a root coming off of this branch or plant against the sons or children of your people. 
And the Hebrew idea here is we are not to allow this to happen against the bane or the son of your people, meaning the Am in Hebrew, which is nothing more than the clan of your spiritual family or people, which can also apply to those who are fellow believers in Yeshua. The text goes on, but you shall love your neighbor. The Hebrew word here is re'ah. You shall love your neighbor as one who is your friend, your companion, or even if they are acting like a ra'ah, someone who is evil, injurious, harmful, and being very bad against you. One who is doing you harm, evil, and wrong. And then it goes on to say, as yourself. Now, I do want to stress that the notion, quote, to love your neighbor as yourself is not spot on. As I understand it, it is much more of an accurate expression to describe this statement from Hebrew as meaning to love your neighbor as he, referring to Yehovah, loves you. Then he says, I am Yehovah. So we are to be a testimony of Yehovah's love to our neighbor, whether they are a deep friend or companion, or they are a bitter enemy. It matters not. We are to love them as Yehovah loves us. Or you could say, as Yehovah loves me. That's easier said than done. That takes a lot of work, and it can wear you out when you really think about it, because it doesn't come easy. We enjoy receiving Yehovah's love, but then to give it out to someone who is unworthy and who is harmful to me or to you or to a group, wow, that's asking an awful lot. But that's what Yehovah does with us all the time. So in Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, the lesson begins with that of receiving from and living in the biblical concept of an undeserved love and covenantal loyalty with Yehovah, which I will explain as we move deeper through the words of the narrative. It is evident from what we are going to learn in this lesson that our response to Yehovah's covenantal love cannot and should never be reduced to just kind of checking off or ticking off a bunch of little boxes, meaning that, you know, we fulfilled our duty to keep and do commandments in a particular way. As if to say, well, I did this and that and that. Now I'm good with Yehovah. No, no, no. According to what Yeshua teaches in the story from Matthew 12, 1 through 8, our love and intimate relationship with Yehovah is not about mechanically performing according to the letter of the law. Rather, our relationship with Yehovah is supposed to be about remaining loyal to his relationship with us. And we'll see that in this lesson as it's repeated over and over again. Here's what Yeshua said in Matthew 12, verse 7. 
If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. And Luke 6.35, For he is compassionate to the unthankful and the evil. Again, the Hebrew word for compassionate is racham, resh chet mem, as well as to the unthankful, those who cannot do hoda'ah, or thankfulness, as well as those who are deemed to be outright evil, or ra'ah, reshain, meaning those who are injurious or harmful, bad, evil, wrong, and they're just doing wrong, bad things. Therefore, the next lesson coming into view is from Matthew chapter 12, verse 2. And when the Pharisees saw that his disciples were plucking heads of grain from the grain fields on the Sabbath, they said to him, to Yeshua, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Well, let's take a closer look at this. We learn from Scripture that in times of need, plucking heads of grain from grain fields, assuming the fields belong to your neighbor and not to you, that that is not stealing, nor is it even a crime. The crime, according to the religious separatists' movement of Yeshua's day, was in performing the action on the Sabbath. Now, where would they get this notion from? The idea is an interpretation of divine law derived from the book of Exodus, Shemot, chapter 31, verses 15 through 16. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is a Sabbath of rest, holy to Jehovah. Therefore, whoever does work on the Sabbath day, he will surely be put to death. Therefore, the sons or children of Israel shall keep or guard the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations, a perpetual covenant. The notion to not pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath is part of how work was defined in the hearts and minds of those who were the official interpreters of the law in the days of Yeshua. That would be the Pharisaic scribes. You see, I've had many over the years ask me to define work for them. And the same issue was for the interpreters of the law of Moses in Yeshua's day, as they also were forced to define work according to how they understood it in their day, what it was and what it was not. In the 4Q or K4 Qumran series of the Dead Sea Scrolls, particularly in the Community Rule Document, which is also called the Manual of Discipline, we find statements like the following. Let no one plan aloud about all matters of work or about wealth or about gain on the day of the Sabbath. And one should not speak a word except to speak holy words according to the precept 
one shall speak to praise God. Indeed, one may speak a word regarding eating or drinking. In listening to this, we must keep in mind that there were many different communities, each with their own varying levels of observances, legally referred to as halakha, that is, the way of walking out the laws of the Torah. In other words, not everyone agreed with everyone else, or perhaps I could say, not everyone agreed with all of the interpretations of divine law, and they could never all be classified as a kind of one-size-fits-all interpretation. Some factions were far stricter than others in some of the Damascus document manuscripts that were not found in the caves of Qumran. Namely, they were found in Egypt in a Geniza, that is a place for old, worn-out scrolls and Jewish writings. Accordingly, there were community disagreements amongst the various religious assemblies of the region about how to do Torah with some religious factions taking their halachic Torah interpretations to extreme measures, while others adopted greater leniency. By the time of Yeshua, halachic interpretations were divided between the views of the house of Shammai versus the house of Hallel. Prior to the coming of Yeshua, Hallel came to be the more popular of the two scholars, chosen by the Sanhedrin or the Jewish Supreme Court to serve as its president. While Hallel and Shammai themselves did not differ on a large number of basic issues of Jewish law, their later disciples were, nonetheless, often in greater conflict with some 300 differing halachic opinions on Jewish law. Today, Jewish orthodoxy generally follows the decrees and rules of the more lenient House of Hallel. But it is said that in the days of Mashiach, when he comes, the majority opinion will shift in favor of the more stringent or confining rules of the House of Shammai. To appreciate the issue of Jewish halakha in Matityahu or Matthew chapter 12, verse 2, which is concerning the actions that could and could not be tolerated in Jerusalem on the Sabbath in Yeshua's day, it is important to understand Messiah's definition of work on the Sabbath. In Hebrew, the concept of work is based on the word malacha, mem, lamed, alev, chav, he, with an all-purpose general meaning of performing a trade, an occupation, or a business. Nevertheless, among the Judeans and their teachings recorded in what is called the Pirkei Avot, that is the Ethics of the Fathers, or the Sage's Guide to Everyday Life, it was taught in Mishnah 1.1, Moses received the Torah and conveyed it to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, the elders to the prophets, the prophets to the men of the great assembly, that would be under Ezra and Nehemiah, they said three things. 
thoroughly investigate or be deliberate in judgment, develop many disciples, and make a protective fence for the Torah. That's right, put a fence around the Torah. From this, the Jewish obligation is a teaching to make a fence for the Torah, which means to make the Torah great and to beautify it. To accomplish this lofty task, the ancient Judeans began building and establishing 39 primary definitions for work on the Sabbath, or in Hebrew, the malachot. From the 39 categories of forbidden work, voluminous subcategories were birthed, or even, you could say, bred, as if one is building a very large family. Thus, if a person violates more than one of the 39 work prohibitions on the Sabbath, he is liable for a separate penalty of punishment for each one of the said transgressions. So we have here 39 categories of forbidden work in Judaism, which dates back 20 centuries, and these are still in effect today in Orthodox Judaism. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, sorting, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing, shearing wool, whitening wool, combing wool, dyeing wool, spinning it, weaving, making two loops, weaving two threads, separating two threads, tying things like knots, untying, if you're going to untie a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing for the purpose of sewing two stitches, hunting a deer, slaughtering, skinning, salting, curing its hide, scraping, cutting, writing two letters, meaning two Hebrew letters, erasing for the purpose of writing two Hebrew letters, building, demolishing, extinguishing a flame, lighting a flame, striking with a hammer, carrying from one domain to another domain. Now, these are the 39 principal malachot. And of course, today, to try to understand every single one of these and how they are going to have an application for each one of us in our everyday lives today in Orthodox Judaism, that is quite an undertaking to make that understood. Now, I am not going to dive into these concepts because this is not the focus of the lesson here, except to speak of one of the categories, which is that of reaping, as it's expressed through Matthew chapter 12, verse 2. And when the Pharisees saw, that is, they saw his disciples who were plucking heads of grain from the grain fields on the Sabbath, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Well, what were they doing? They were violating the oral tradition, the oral law of reaping, as it is transmitted down line through the 39 categories of forbidden work 
on the Sabbath, reaping, and perhaps even that of winnowing, sorting, grinding, sifting, categories like that. So the legally-minded Pharisees could pretty much hold Yeshua and his disciples guilty on all counts. Of course, religious separatists among the Pharisees, and yes, even among some of the more stringent, super-duper Pharisees of the Qumran Dead Sea Scroll communities, and I'm using that in a plural sense, not a singular sense, observing the Sabbath the, quote, right way, was of utmost importance and concern. And yes, it remains as a top priority even to this very day. I know because I lived it. What we need to know is what Yehovah, the master of heaven and earth, and the giver of the Torah, said to the whole Hebrew nation. The law is recorded for us once again in Exodus chapter 31. Let's take a look at verses 13 through 14. Speak also to the sons or children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall guard. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am Jehovah who sanctifies you. You will guard the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. And also there is this word from Ezekiel or Yehezkiel, a priest of the line of Sadok, who spoke in the name of Jehovah, saying in Ezekiel 20, verses 11 through 13, And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live in them. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between them and me, that they might know that I am Jehovah who sanctifies them. Yet the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes. They despised my judgments, which if a man does, he will live in them. And they greatly defiled my Sabbaths. Then I said, I would pour out my fury on them in the wilderness to consume them. What I want you to hopefully recognize here is the deep rift between Jehovah's Torah and the Judeans' Torah, as well as the religious Torah or regulations of some others among the Qumran communities, again, using that in a plural sense, not a singular sense, because there were many, many Qumran communities surrounding the Qumran community, or if you will, the mother congregation, but they all had various ways of understanding the Torah and interpreting the laws based on their own guidelines and how they define work on the Sabbath. And back then, it was a complicated and tangled web 
of do's and don'ts, and it remains the same to this very day here in modern-day Judaism. And not only is it complicated, it can weary the soul. And this should help you to understand why Yeshua said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And also in Matthew chapter 12, verse 8, for the Son of Man is master even of the Shabbat, or even of the Sabbath. If the master owner of the Sabbath, who repeatedly declares in Scripture, my statutes, my judgments, and my Sabbaths, if he who owns the Sabbath permits one to pluck heads of grain while walking through a neighbor's grain field on the Sabbath, then who are we to decree that it's just forbidden to do that? So with all this being said, I am going to have to end the program here. Today's program is part 12 of my multi-part series on the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you have any questions or comments about any of these programs, oh, please do navigate over to our website at www.cominghome.co.il. Yah willing, I'll see you next week. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio.